Well, I'm excited to be here today. This will be the third and sort of final installment from 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, but, you know, I wanted to start out, we're not going to make any trips to Top Gun like we have a few times in the past week, but today I do want to start with a little trip back down memory lane for the Chiefs fans, at least in the room. So I'm a big Chiefs fan, always have been, born and raised in Kansas City. And if, if you're not, you'll just have to bear with me for just a brief second. It's not going to be that long. We'll be over it soon. But I also figured that, you know, Kevin's had enough time up here talking about the Broncos that we finally need to get someone up here that can at least reverence the Chiefs from time to time. Yeah, we got a Broncos fan back there. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, um, <clears throat> so Kevin's not here to defend himself. I guess Shad can fill in. But years ago, the Chiefs had a head coach uh, that was really well known to be a powerful uh, motivator of his team or his teams. And his pregame speeches would really motivate these men to take the field and remain well-focused to get the job done that they had been trained to do. And since his passing away, ESPN actually produced a really pretty cool one-hour documentary uh, highlighting Coach uh, Marty Schottenheimer's career, and many of his speeches are captured in that documentary, and, and you watch him, and it takes you back to the late 80s, early 90s, and you see him there. But he, he would draw to mind things after hours of preparation and watching video of themselves and their opponents preparing for this great game that they were going to undertake and this field they were about to enter a battle, he would give them these big speeches to rally them. And he would have themes like, you know, one play at a time. You know, don't worry about the past play. You've got to focus on the next play. What's done is done. Focus on what lies ahead. Play together. Work as a unit he had one that was real famous. There's a gleam, gentlemen. There's a gleam. There's a light. You got to look to it and head towards it. It's the light at the end of the tunnel. Reach. He has one where he says, reach for the next rung of the ladder. Every man's going to have to grab on and pull his weight up. And he'd have these big speed. They'd all rally around, all chanting ready. And then they hit the ground. They're ready to roll. Uh, and he would do this to get them motivated. And you know, Peter, in this chapter four of First Peter, I believe he's sort of been doing that kind of thing here with these first century believers in Asia Minor as they're preparing to face tribulation, to face suffering, to face persecution. He's, and he called it in chapter 4 a fiery ordeal that they will be facing. Uh, and he's preparing them. And this section is meant to arm them, get them ready for the battlefield. Much like Mar Marty Schottenheimer would rally his team Buying a call to focus on what matters most, I believe so too our beloved apostle and brother Peter wanted to rally and focus his readers on what mattered most when facing the battlefield of life. And today we're going to close out this section and see what key reminders, it's always when you get to someone's sort of a concluding section, you got to say, what are the key things he's want to really bear down and, and focus in on with these first century believers? What is he going to leave with them? And I think at first glance, you might be a little surprised by what he says, but I hope as we sort of dive into it, examine it a little word by word, we'll see just how critical these elements are, even for us today. So let's stand here as we read 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. 
The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Ask the Lord to speak to your hearts here this morning. Lord, as we open your word, we, we want to turn to you as we gaze upon your word and gaze upon you. We want to just ask that you will let us be instructed by it. That you will allow it to cut deep into the core of what, what it needs to do, it's where it needs to do its work to, to influence, influence us and to shape us and to mold us to be the people you want us to be. May we hear this call that Peter, as he's leaving here in chapter 4, 1 through 11, he gives this arm yourself command to these first century believers to have the mind and purpose of Christ. May we hear that call, and may we glean these last things that he's going to leave them with to say, hold on to these things. They're critical elements for us as we enter the field of battle, even today in 2022. We don't know, Lord, what tomorrow holds, but we know that you'll be there, and you'll be with us, and we can take these words to heart. May you, as our consummate teacher, take your spirit, apply these words into our hearts and our minds, and may you affect the change that you're after. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. You may be seated. So, <clears throat> as Peter closes this section, uh, we looked briefly last week uh, at the end, we looked at this, this call to have an attitude or a perspective that the end is near. Believers, according to the New Testament, should live with a mindset that Christ's return is imminent. We looked at that last time. And Peter says that that sort of perspective should motivate the, the believer to live with sound judgment and a sober spirit with a purpose towards prayer. So the sound judgment is a word meaning a clear or serious mind. Sober is a word that conveys alertness. The idea that that we want to be free from any influence that would dull the mind or the senses that we've been given. In this case, Peter says you take that clear and alert and, and serious mind and senses and you should direct it toward the purpose of prayer. You know, we live in a culture that has a ton of distractions. I mean, it's just, if you think through all the things that you can get distracted by nowadays... It's, it's amazing, and we carry around little widgets in our pockets wherever we go that they're constantly, and we can get texts, emails, reminders, notifications, advertisements, meeting alerts, 
of videos that we can watch anywhere, any place, any time. Shop anywhere, any place, any time. Listen to music anywhere, any place, any time. We could get an update on medical reports and disease updates. We can get breaking news flashes, sports you know, updates. We can hear what's going on with the war situation. We can get a market trackers will be pinging our phones, telling us how our stocks are doing. And the list goes on and on. And it isn't that all that's in and of itself bad, but it can be distracting to us. And many times these things come at us anywhere and every place. Like I've said, I was thankful last week to go out with some brothers here to go out to the lake and just sort of turn the phones off a little bit, just float around in Table Rock Lake and just sit there. We saw bald eagles and I mean, it was awesome. You just take time to step back and you, and you sort of unplug and, and, and I think that's a little bit about what Peter's after. You're going to have to have a mind that's, that isn't so distracted you're going to have to have some focus. Peter's saying, let's shut down the phones, turn off the TV, disconnect the headphones for just a bit. Have a serious and clear posture of prayer because the end is near, he says. Now, prayer for the believer is not an optional thing. It's a call throughout the New Testament. It's something that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. This attitude of having this continual communication with God, it's absolutely critical for the believer. It doesn't matter whether I'm at, you know, Nixa Hardware looking at something. I'm, am I asking the Lord about this, some direction with this, what I'm working on? I'm out working on something out of, you know, property or something. Am I turning to the Lord? Am I at work working on some electronics? I mean, I'm definitely going to need the Lord. It's a constant communication with the Lord, and believers are called to it. And Jesus exhibited this attitude of the clear mind and the alert posture of prayer, especially when faced with his hour of tribulation, trial, and suffering as it drew near. Remember Matthew 26, 36. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. You remember the story. He goes over and he begins to pray. They nonetheless end up falling asleep. He goes back, wake, and hey, keep praying. They end up falling asleep again. He, he's staying on his knees in prayer. He has that clear mind. And we learn in Luke twenty two forty four. it says, in being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood. That's how focused he was on this point of prayer He knew the suffering was imminent. He knew the day and the hour was upon him. And what does he do? Turns to this immediate clear mind of prayer before his father. And we never want to underestimate the power of prayer in the life of a believer. Elijah prayed, James says, and it didn't rain, remember? Nehemiah prayed and found favor in the eyes of the king to help move a group back to rebuild the wall. David prayed and strengthened himself in the Lord his God when his men were speaking of stoning him. Daniel prayed to open a door for the restoration of Israel out of captivity. Samson, if you remember, he cried out to the Lord uh, after he had fought this great fight and the Lord was there to help him in times of need and even had water come up out of the ground to, to relieve his thirst. Stephen, if you remember, prayed while he was being stoned to death. And what does he get to see? He he got to see into the heavens and he saw Jesus standing beside 
the Father and looking down, welcoming Stephen into heaven. Hannah prayed and the womb was open. Prayer is the first line element for the believer armed and ready for the battlefield of life. And Peter, having been witness to the story I just read about Christ, he witnesses. Yeah, he may have dozed off a little bit, but he got to see those drops of blood, the sweat of blood, you know, sweating blood and the fervent prayer. And he's saying here to these believers, you have that same mind. You have that same purpose to a call to prayer. Especially, especially when the trials and the pressures are arising. The next item on Peter's punch list, he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. He starts out here, above all. And you have that sort of wording, it's good to say, what it, that we need to pay attention to that. The Greek word pro, followed by Greek pos, meaning pro means before, or in front of, or prior to, and pos means every, all, or the whole. So he's saying above everything else, above all, the foremost element in the walk of a believer that is critical when going on to the battlefield, armed and ready. This is the characteristic he points him to, and that's the characteristic of, a, of love, agapeo. This attribute of focusing on the good of others, committed to the benefit of others, caring for others, working on behalf of others. That's what's bound up in this word. And Peter says they should keep fervent in this agapeo or this love for one another. The idea embodied here in this word for keep fervent, it's a really cool thing to look at because it's, it's a word that elsewhere is translated stretched or extended or reached or reaching. And it's actually used of an athlete straining to the limits of their ability. Incredible thing to see an athlete just giving it everything they have. And Peter says, that's the attitude you're going to need when you face these trials. And you'll, you'll have to have that attitude of straining and stretching your love for one another. Now, stretching for love can be difficult, especially when the pressures are high. And that is why I believe he puts it before them in this call to these believers undergoing trials. They will need love amongst themselves as they walk through this. Because if, if you think about it, opting for the alternative situation of being bitter or harsh towards one another or self-willed and self-focused, that'll become the temptation especially as, the, as the, the pressure cooker arises. But he says, no, strain and stretch yourself in love. Now, you know, I was thinking about this this week and thinking of some times where our, you know, your love is stretched or strained. And I don't know about you, but uh, this is the time of year where you get out and you take big road trips. You know, this is, it's summer in the United States of America. People take their PTO, they, they get in the car and they head out on trips. And I love taking big trips. We take some really big trips. And, you know, many times when we set out, we all pack our way into this car and we'll, we'll say a prayer as we launch out. And it isn't always the, like some rehearsed prayer. We just ask the Lord to go before us, keep us safe, so on and so forth. Every once in a while, I remember 
Genesis 45, 24. Remember Joseph, after revealing himself to his brothers, gives them all these gifts, sends them back to the land of Canaan with the gifts to get their father and move them back to the land of Goshen. So he sent his brothers away, Joseph did. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. And I've always said that <laughs> this guy knew he, he had lived this stuff out. He knew what it was like to travel through, you know, over the Sinai Peninsula on the way up to Canaan. He knew what his brothers were like. He had traveled with them before. Uh, he had faced their wrath before as well. But nonetheless, he's calling them, don't quarrel when you're out on this journey. Now, you would think that on a journey, a family vacation, a road trip, it's jubilation and excitement. And it definitely can be. I'm not saying it's not. But there's also the reality of taking in our family seven people, loading them into a Honda Pilot, and then setting out on a 10 to sometimes upwards of 16 hours to drive out to Colorado or wherever we're heading. It's a big journey. And when we get there, we'll end up living out of a suitcase while we're there. And our mindsets, if you really are honest, they're almost entirely on having fun, doing whatever our individual hearts want to go do because it's time to, we've disconnected and we're, we're going to have a blast, right? That's what vacation is about. But as you can sort of imagine, when you load in this car, sometimes the exact opposite ends up happening. Instead of the fun and ever happy-go-lucky, we're, we're cramped, we're tired. Eventually, someone needs to go to the bathroom and you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're like, well, there's no gas station here, so we're going to have to figure this one out. And then after that, you got someone at the same time who's, who's th just dying of thirst. And then you know what that leads to? Then, <laughs> then they've got to go to the bathroom. So then you've got this, we've got, and we're eventually like, this is, a, this is a, just a mess. We've got to stop in every 40 minutes having to go to the bathroom. Anyway, and then you've got those that are in the car that all of a sudden they've latched on to some line of a movie and they're just laughing and laughing and laughing and they keep repeating the line over and over and you're driving lines. I've heard this over and over. Then you've got another that just checks out with the headphones and they're off in their own world. And then you've got someone in the car that's saying, I think we should listen to 80s Christian music. I don't know who that might be. And then, and then, you've, got, then you've got others in the car. Oh, I don't want to listen to that old stuff. I was happy when we sang Michael W. Smith earlier, you know, the Waymaker song. I was like, yes, Michael W. Smith. But anyway, you've got others that I've heard it a thousand times. I want to listen to something more modern. And you, you can probably guess who that is. And then, of course, when you get there, when you actually find out when you arrive, depending on where we are and what time of year it is, you know, one wants to go sled, the other one wants to go ski, one wants to go hang out to the, at the lodge. I think I know who that one might be. On a different trip, you got another one wants to go fish, another one wants to go hike, one wants to camp in a tent, one wants to shoot the BB guns, another one wants to stay at an Airbnb. I wonder who that might be, but you get the point. We're all in here, and it's just... You know, it's at these moments that an individual's heart to love one another, it's a little bit tested. It's a little bit strained. 
It's a little, you know, it's hard at times to stretch and strain for that love. And I believe in Peter's day, the same basic equation is true. And we laugh about this, but this is a real thing for them. They're facing a life and death situation. Above all, he says, when you arm yourself and get ready for the trials and pressures on the battlefield, make sure you're ready to stretch your love towards each other because the pressure is certainly going to test it just like the 16-hour car ride to Durango had a way of testing our attitudes of agapeo. Anyway, Peter says, we stretch ourselves in this area because love covers a multitude of sins. And I think he's hearkening back to a great proverb that Solomon wrote. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. And 17.9, same book in Proverbs, same sort of idea. He who conceals a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. You know, as one stretches for love, especially with those they're in close proximity to, the result hopefully is a consistent attitude to seek forgiveness and a covering when they are wrong. We will wrong each other. We will say things at times that are hurtful. It will occur. If we're seeking love, we pursue first an attitude of forgiveness and a covering. And I love these Proverbs because Solomon in his mastery by the Spirit always does these, these two things that are like exact opposites to let us see the picture clearly. He says the opposite of this love situation is one that stirs up strife. They repeat the matter. They keep repeating and bringing the sin and the transgression back up, which ultimately, he says, is this attitude of hatred, and it ultimately leads to a separation of intimate friends and the death of a relationship, which is a sad position. And that's the other road where we're not walking, stretching our love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the picture of agapeo love that Peter is saying you're going to have to stretch in that area. This is the love that God the Father has demonstrated to us by giving us his son and his son's willingness to come. And even his own son, when he was walked amongst us, he called us as well, his disciples. He called us to love one another just as he loved us. You remember John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This should be the, the marker of genuine believers in Christ, stretching for love. And as I was thinking this whole section this week, I, it, I also was struck with the reality that many times, for, for whatever reason, we sometimes find it hard to love those that we're the closest to. And I think that's an interesting thing. Our closest family members, sometimes we get embittered against them. We get harsh towards them. And you're saying, why is that? 
And he's sitting here to these brothers and sisters in the first century. And I would say it to you right here. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family of the Lord's called by God, children of God. We are to love one another as family members. And it it dawned on me as I was thinking, why with family is it so hard at times to love well? It reminded me of a story uh, of of my great uncle Howard. And I'm not putting him before you as as a great example. It's just sort of a, a, a funny example of, of a guy sort of doing the other opposite. He was not real good at loving those that were real close to him, but those that were guests he was great towards, um, which we'll get to a second here in Peter's letter. But nonetheless, my great-uncle Howard lived down in East Texas, and, and I would go down there. I loved to go down to Texas as a kid growing up, and even into my college years, I'd go down there, and I'd invite my, my roommate I'd say to Brian, let's go down to Texas, we'll fish, you know, we'll have a blast down there. And so we started, he would go down there with me. And, and as, whenever you'd bring a visitor to Uncle Howard's house, it was like, let's roll out the red carpet. I mean, here we got, you know, Brian is here and, and we're going to make it grand and great for him. And, and we had a blast, you know, we'd go down, we'd fish during the days. And, and then I remember one day, Coming back, we had fished all day. I actually had a pretty big fish on that day. And we had usually sit down with Uncle Howard, sort of enjoy a a glass of sweet tea there in East Texas in a hot Texas summer day or spring day in this case. But we were on spring break. But anyway, I remember telling him, he was a funny character because as he got old, he was a little cranky. I told him, Uncle Howard, I had a big bass on and I caught it. We didn't quite get it in because he didn't have the net. Yeah, sure you did, you know. (laughs) Sure, you had it. I don't think you had a big bass. I think you had a big catfish. I was like, we saw it jump five times. No, 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 no. You know, you never argued with Uncle Howard. You just learned that whatever he said, you just had to take it. But anyway, that night, that one night, Brian and I were sitting there at the table, and uh, he said, Well, let's head on now. I'm going to take you guys to the Dairy Palace. This is the only accent I'll ever try to do, by the way, southern accent. I'm, I'm no good at no other impersonation. So uh, I'll take you over to the Dairy Palace. And I said, I said, Uncle Howard, you don't need to take us to the Dairy Palace. You've already done enough opening up your house and everything. He said, he looked right at me and says, Joel, I know I don't have to take you to the Dairy Palace. I want to take you to the Dairy Palace. And then he turned to my friend Brian and he said, come on, Bruce, let's leave this dead weight behind. And he just, he walked out, got in the car. They load me, of course, into the back of the car. And we make our journey over to Canton, Texas to eat at the Dairy Palace. But nonetheless, the thing was, is it's like, Uncle Howard, I'm your, I'm, I'm blood of your blood. I'm like, I'm a family member. But to him, I was just sort of, oh, you're not the special one here this anymore. We got, we got a new one on the block. But he was great at, at loving others that were outside the van. But when they were the ones that were closest, I'll say this last thing. He even called the cops on us, us at a big family reunion once for shooting fireworks. The cop came out and said, they've done no wrong. He's like, but it's dry around here. And like, anyway, he would, to his own family members, he would just, you never knew what he was going to do. But anyway... If we're going to face suffering and tribulation and persecution and pressures on the battlefield, we absolutely must lead with love towards one another. Otherwise, we infight and we attack one another. We fight only for ourselves and we ultimately end up a house divided, ready to fall. And by the way, the Bible it shows us little glimpses of the reality that persecution and suffering as a way at times of upending 
love and hospitality if we're not careful. Matthew 24, 9 in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, talking about a great tribulation period, then they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And most people's love will grow cold. Times of pressure have a way of turning things on their heads. And he's saying here, and Peter, don't go down that road. Stretch for, the, for love. The next thing Peter says is be hospitable to one another without complaint. Hospitable is a compound Greek word, philoxenos, philos, meaning a beloved or dear or friendly. Uh, xenos meaning a foreigner or a guest. So in this case, Uncle Howard lived this one out pretty good. He, he was the philoxenos. He loved the stranger, right? The idea here that Peter's getting across is a genuine love for guests or strangers. And Peter says, by the way, to do this, Without complaint, there's this, he says, no muttering or murmuring or grumbling. And he'd say, you know, what does this have to do with the time of suffering? Well, this is going to be a critical element when times are rough, pressures are high, and suffering is on the line. The willingness to open our homes and welcome others that are in need can be difficult when things are hard outside our doors. Imagine the first century when you're being persecuted. Uh, believers may be killed if they don't bow down and deify Caesar. Some were forced to up in and leave their homes and flee, needing a place to stay, exhibiting philoxenos, this love of strangers or love of guests, the love towards outsiders could be taxing, and yet it would be essential as their hour of pressure would draw near. I, last week, I told you about Corey Tinboom and how her family opened their home up to Jewish folks in the time of World War II being hunted down by the Nazis. And the, to see that, to see their willingness to open their home to strangers, to put their lives on the line, they ended up giving. Like her dad died and her brother died and her sister in an prison camp because they were supporting and helping Jews, persecuted Jews. Their normal lives, the tin booms, were greatly changed as their house, as they housed Jews, and they painstakingly made and continued with the conviction to be hospitable to, be, to these people in need, the Jewish people. They lived it out. And I remember a little glimpse of it in an ice storm in 2007. We had attended CCC maybe two and a half, three years. And I was just sort of getting to know everyone around here and getting to know Kevin. And I remember our power transformer blew. We were without power. House was cold. Some of you guys lived through that and remember that, that time period. Uh, pretty, pretty big roller coaster. But I'll never forget getting a phone call from Kevin Short saying, just wanted to check in, see if you had needed anything. You know, if you need a place to warm up, come on over. We're opening up our house. You can swing by anytime. I mean, to, to reach out to a person that's only been at the church for a couple of years you know, it isn't like we're lifelong members, uh, like as many of you guys had been at the time, but he did that for us, and it's, all, it's always stuck in my mind that uh, he called us, and I'll, and I'll never forget that. And Peter, as he moves us, he's saying, we need to have that open attitude towards those that are, that are guests and, and, and even strangers that we don't know that well. Now, Peter closes out here his pregame, his pre-persecution speech, if you will, and he focuses on another awesome reality for each and every believer in Christ that I believe 
Not only did he view it, but God views it as essential when we face trials and tribulations and pressures. Uh, He says in 4.10, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Starts out, each one has received a gift. This is an awesome reality that every believer in Christ has been bestowed with a special gift from the Lord, whether you know it or not. And Peter calls each believer to employ their gift in serving one another. He uses a Greek verb, uh, diakoneo, which is a word that means to serve, to be a minister and serve others within the body. It's the same word, the the noun form, uh, diakonos, is where we get the term deacon. If those have been in church circles most of their lives, you've heard of deacons or deaconesses. That's a person that's been marked out as a special servant in the church. In this case, he's saying you take your gifts, each individual gift, and you serve. You serve one another. And it's key here to notice again the focus is outward. All these calls are an outward focus towards others versus ourselves. Pretty easy in times of pressure to think only of ourselves. I'm thinking I'm out for me, number one, to protect me, to keep myself safe through whatever tribulation that's coming. Here's like it's always outward focus, loving others, hospitable to others, and in here using our gifts to equip and, and encourage one another. Peter says this is a stewardship that all of us as believers in Jesus Christ have been entrusted with. This stewardship idea is really pretty cool because it's a Greek word that, that it talks about a manager of a household. It's a word that would mean this person has been given the oversight role and been given authority to oversee a household and the things that go on in it. But the steward didn't own the house. And that's sort of what's in view here. So we should steward and manage our own individual gifts. Understand that these gifts... These spiritual gifts, they're not our own. They're God's gifts. And as we individually steward these God-given gifts, we collectively, get this now, this is an awesome reality, we collectively demonstrate the manifold, multicolored, multifaceted grace of our God. The many different gifts that are sitting right here with all of us here today demonstrate his multifaceted grace. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Now there are a variety, varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Do you know how many varieties are in there? There's a lot of different things, a lot of variety. And yet one Lord, one spirit for a common purpose. And I want you to get the picture that Peter paints here back in chapter 4. Is it's an, an incredible thing to look at in the wording because and it, you wouldn't see it if you, if you didn't dive a little deeper and go into the Greek because the words that, he, that, are, that are brought forth are cool to look at because it says, it, it, a picture that he's painting here is that God's grace... Greek word charis, is stewarded through us by him giving to each of us 
a gift, charisma, which is a free gift of grace. And through the variety of charismas and great gifts, his multifaceted grace, charis, is on display. On display, I believe, to the angels, to us, and to those all around us. And these individuals' gifts, they, they need to function together in order to achieve what Paul said is the common good. God's purpose is lived out right here amongst us in his body. Peter says, remember, as you take the field of battle, as the pressure rises and the suffering ensues, you'll need to function in the variegated team that God has made you. Each one of you is vital to the equation. You know, Nick Jordan and I used to, used to coach little league soccer. And it was funny because when you start out with little, little kids playing soccer, it's basically a game of herd ball. Wherever the ball goes, there goes the herd. I mean, it, it's hilarious to watch. They just go wherever the ball goes. And what you have to work on as a coach is you begin, as they grow, you're saying, no, we need you to learn how to play this position. And we need you to play right in here. And you, we need you up here. We need you to be way up there. We need you to tack when called upon. And each person has a role. And as the, as the team would grow, I remember he and I would work with little by little by little. They grew and they, they started to see the picture. And as you saw the team come together, you saw them function well out on the field. And it was, it was a cool thing. And that's a little what the picture's like here. He's given us all these cool gifts all by his grace, each gift a demonstration of that gracious gift. And together, it's like this just reveals all these cool facets of who God is and the way he is and what he's given to us. You know, COVID left many churches in, in a perilous situation. And one lesson that I sort of learned by just being a spectator and even being in it here as we traffic through it at CCC is that I learned that it is fundamentally need, we fundamentally need to continue serving one another and using the gifts that he has given to us. How can we function well if two-thirds of the gifted, spirit-filled people are not actively involved? How can a physical body work without the various organs and systems that are in place? They just decide, I'm out to lunch. The spleen, I'm out to lunch today. It might cause you some problems. Your lungs start to shut down. I had a friend that was, he was in the mid-20s. Lungs started shutting down. They'd go in and do some work. It caused problems. You, you know it when things start shutting down. We can't. We need each other to function as a body. He goes on, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Now Peter groups these gifts. I think this, this verse 11 goes with verse 10 right before it. He just introduced all these cool gifts and he sort of groups them into two predominant categories, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. And in both cases, his emphasis here is very clear. Whether you have a speaking gift or you have a serving gift, and there's a lot of different things under that umbrella, you are empowered by God to use it for God with the result 
that he will be glorified. In other words, this isn't about you. This is all about him. For the speaker, the one who has the speaking gifts, understand that when you exercise that type of gift that's been given to you graciously by the Spirit, not of your own doing, you are speaking the words of God, the oracles or utterances of God, not your own. And for the one who's serving and working down these halls and around this building and serving at this body, understand that your ability to do that action or perform that God-given task, whatever it may be. He says it's empowered by God. He is your strength in that. It's not your own ability or your own ingenuity. It's a God-given gift that he's given to you in the power of his spirit. Now, for me, as I was reading these words, they have a way of sort of ringing pretty harsh and true with me because you might tell I sort of like to speak, but... Anyway, that's, that's beside the point. Uh, the thing is, I get up here and I speak and, and I was reading this and, and it, there's something that it convicted me of. And I'm just going to share it with you. You know, I constantly review my words. And there's nothing wrong with being well prepared. I don't think that's what Peter's saying. Don't be well prepared. I don't think that's what he's getting at. What he is getting at is about what I'm about to tell you. I constantly review my words, and I can many times be my own worst critic. Two or three hours from now, I'll be doing something around the house, I'll remember something that I said right here. Uh, how dumb I was to say that. Well, hold on a minute. Was that you saying that? Or was it me saying that? God speaking. Is it you? Are you going to critique what I led you to say constantly? thinking that you did that in your own strength? Or are you going to just rest and say, it's you doing it, Lord. It's not mine anyway. Any ability I have to speak up here, it's not mine. It was given to me by the Lord. It's his gift. Just like Moses when he said, I have no good tongue to speak. I'm not good at speech. He says, who is it that made the tongue inside of a man's mouth? It's I, the Lord, who made that. I can make you a good speaker. Now, many of people, many a person, when given these gifts, has fallen into, the, fallen into this trap that we want everyone to hear what we have to say or see what we do around the church and give us accolades or how good, how good, good job, great and good job. But that leads us to our own pride, right? We feel good about ourselves. Peter's saying, no, this is all about God. These gifts, they're not of your own, they're God's. We don't want to fall into that trap. The result in all of this is that God is glorified through Jesus Christ, his son. I've always thought there at that last statement, I was like, after all that you talk about the gifts, you would have thought his equation would have been God is glorified through the body of all these gifts. But he says, no, God's glorified through Jesus Christ. That's awesome because to live on this earth as a believer is Christ. To take these gifts he's given, that is Christ. What we're doing now is what Christ has called us to do. So ultimately, Paul, or Peter's statement here is dead on. God be glorified through the work and power of Jesus, the Messiah. 
And that is his call here as we, the body of Christ, his earthly emissaries, are ready and arm ourselves for the mission that he has called us to undertake, whether it be in tribulation and suffering or not. This is the call he puts before us in this book of Peter as he's sort of closing out a fairly large section on uh, getting them armed and ready. Now, I want to close out here to put before you a story from the Old Testament. You know, a lot of times we think as believers, we live righteously, we try to walk for the Lord, we submit to the Lord, things are going to be on the up and up. And, and I'm not saying that God isn't good, he is good. And he does lead us to the quiet pastures and the still waters and, and, and things of that nature. But he also is with us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when the pressures come. And he many times will actually test us and bring us through those things to let us see both our hearts and his love towards us. There was an individual in the Bible that had to face something pretty massive, I believe. He had lived his life pretty well. He had been anointed as a king of Judah. He had done a good job. And then he did have to go into the pressure cooker. He had to go in a time of testing, a little like what Peter's saying, be armed and ready for the fire. This is Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 31.20. Hezekiah did what was good, right, and true before the Lord his God. Every work which he began in the service of the house of God in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all of his heart, and he prospered. It's all going to be rosy from here. Well, not quite. After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. And you remember the story. He makes his way all the way down, not just to the surrounding cities in Judah, but to the city in Judah. The final holdout, Jerusalem, the capital. And there's Hezekiah with the people. And the Lord has moved him. He's gone out and he's made preparation. He's stopped up the water outside the wall so that when that king Sennacherib got there, he wouldn't have any water for his troops. And he's rallied the troops and he's gathered them much like Marty Schottenheimer would or like Peter's doing here. And he gathers them together in 32.7. He says to all the people, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord Yahweh, our God, to help us and to fight our battles. And the people, the people, they relied on the, word of, the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, they prayed about this situation. They had that posture of prayer. They saw the end was near. They cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So the Lord Yahweh saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. And he guided them on every side. Hezekiah walked for the Lord and he faced the pressure cooker. And I know where he turned. He did not turn to himself. He turned to his God. And I know where Hezekiah got the words that he spoke to the people. He got it through the gracious spirit of Almighty God. 
And they're almost word for word of what Joshua said as well, generations before. And I know where Hezekiah got the wisdom to go cut off those water supplies and get ready and be armed and ready. The Spirit of God moved him to do so. And I know where the people got the courage to stand hand in hand while their city was being besieged and surrounded by a massive force. It was God moving in their midst. And I know where their hope lied. It lied in the mighty hand of their God, Yahweh. And I know where their final deliverance came from. It came from the awesome angel of the Lord, who I believe was none other than Jesus Christ himself in great and awesome power. You know, I wanted to actually gather, it'd be awesome to gather us all together, put our hands in like we would do out at a little league soccer game. Say, on the count of three, one, two, three, and you go out for the field of battle. That's what Peter's after right here. He's saying, be armed and ready. Hear him rally us at Christ Community Church to take up that armed and ready attitude with the gleam that the end is in sight, to be people with a posture of prayer, clear minds, and a sober spirit, be a church ready, standing and stretched in our love towards one another, hospitable to those around us, and using, especially using our spirit-empowered gifts to come alongside one another, to serve one another, to point the direction and glorify God the Father through Jesus, his Son. And this, my friends, is how the bride of Christ enters the field of battle, hand in hand, armed and ready. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that You've given us passages like these in 1 Peter chapter 4. I know he wrote them in 64 to people that were facing a very unique and challenging situation. And many will look at this and say, well, how does that exactly apply? But we know here we are in 2022 that we want to learn as much as we can from your spirit and from the word you put before us here. That there are truths for us as believers, even today, as we face various forms of persecution and attacks from those that are outside that don't know you, that are, that are attacking the bride of Christ, even Satan and his forces. But let us be like Christ and be armed and ready with this purpose in mind to follow you in your will, no matter what lies ahead. And may we, as the pressures arise, may, may our love not grow cold, but may we, we realize that we got to stretch and strain to love, to love well. We've got to reach out to those around us that we may not know that well and even open our homes at times and be hospitable to those that we don't know well, for the hour may call for it. We've got to be people of prayer. We've got to use the gifts, the awesome gifts that you've given us to then reflect out your awesome multifaceted nature to those around us and then equip one another, encourage each other to take this life on head, hand in hand, head to head. We go out fighting and contending, holding on to the words that you've given to us. We pray and I pray for these people that they will be encouraged by your word, strengthened as they leave here today knowing that they can love one another well and that we are the great family of God together as brothers and sisters. Let us love one another the way you've called us, the new commandment you gave to us as you loved us.
May we love each other. We pray now and ask these awesome things in your great and incredible name, the name of Jesus, Yeshua, our Savior from Nazareth. It's in his name we pray. Amen.